Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 20th, 2020. The Share ID numbers for Friday, December 18th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,018, that's 16018. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,019, that's 16019. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Bondage of Resentments. The Big Book teaches that to get over drinking... Of course, for us, compulsive overeating will require a transformation of thought and attitude. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. According to the big book, we must make a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us from our higher power. What we have to do now is to be rid of those things in ourselves which have been blocking us from God. Since this power is deep down inside of us, what is preventing us from an effective relationship with our higher power? When we get rid of the things that block us from our higher power, we will find that our higher power enters into our lives. The task is to get rid of the blocks. Step four begins this process of unblocking. It is not, however, the entire process. That process, the inventory process, is steps four through nine. Our goal is to root out the causes of our living problems so that we can do something about them. We have embarked on a program of action that will restore us to sanity. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Resentment the big book says, is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. One problem with resentments is that they cause us to be unhappy. You can consider a resentment as something or somebody that you're angry at because it occupies your mind. Things that you regret, things that anger you, annoy you, irritate you, or frustrate you, things that you wish had happened or wish hadn't happened. The if-onlys, the more serious problem compulsive overeaters is this business of resentment is infinitely grave. The big book says it is fatal. If we hold on to resentments, we are in bondage. We will not be able to undergo the spiritual experience, the transformation that protects us from a return to active compulsive overeating. Joining us this morning to share their personal experience with resentments 
and the application of the steps that rearrange those ideas, attitudes, and emotions regarding resentments are three panelists. We have Nancy P. from Massachusetts, Rick J. from North Carolina, and Melanie C. from Oregon. And it's with great appreciation that I'll welcome panelist number one, Nancy P. Hi, good morning, Leah. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for asking me to do service. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I feel like before I recovered, I was a resentment-making machine. I mean, if you could have, you know, looked at me at the molecular level, you would have seen my body just, you know, a machine inside that just outputs resentment this, at the slightest little thing. And, you know, a lot of those resentments um, were mostly about me not getting my way and, you know, just people not towing the line the way that I wanted. But what I learned in doing these steps, you know, this is, I'm, I'm starting at the fourth step, like, you know, as I have become aware that I'm powerless over food and my life is unmanageable, et cetera, um, was that for me, and this is just for me, only Nancy P and anybody else who wants to jump on the bandwagon, is more than resentment is fear. You know, all of my resentments, I look at them, and what I want to drill down to is the fear. Now, I got to say, I went through the big book step study process once before, back in 2002, when my daughter was a little a baby. She, I took her to my first big book step study meeting in, a, in one of those buckets, a baby carrier. So she was only three months old. And I got a perfectly adequate sponsor, a lovely woman, uh, very bright, and I worked with her, and I took... Uh, I wrote my fourth step six nights a week for an hour for three years, and it was 550 pages long. And I read my fifth step over, I don't know, maybe, you know, several marathon sessions. I don't remember how many, but I got through that and, you know, did all the rest of it. And it didn't take. I ate for 13 more years until, you know, my life continued to deal me some hands that would indicate that I needed to... Um, do something differently. And it wasn't until um, I had had enough pain that I finally was stopped in my tracks. And I've talked about this before, and I was discussing it with a fellow last night about this talk that I was going to give. And I will go into the same resentment. My poor daughter, who was then about 15, 14, 15 years old, was cutting and burning herself. And I could see that she was in a lot of pain, but couldn't she see that I was in more pain? I mean, I was just howling with fear and pain and rage, and, um, and I couldn't eat fast enough to get rid of those feelings. And, you know, that's what brought me into recovery, but the resentment was monstrous and still had to be dealt with. And um, when I did my fourth step, you know, fast forward to the new fourth step, the vision fourth step, uh, far from spending three years, six nights a week, I was given two weeks to uh, write it, and I couldn't believe that that would be the case, but what happened was I did it in two weeks, and a lot of my resentment was, you know, well, one, one big resentment. You know, we were usually as, as precise as this example. I resent my daughter because she's cutting herself, hacking herself up with a razor blade and burning herself to a crisp. It makes me feel like, oh, my God, that's really all that I could think of. And um, 
in the end, what happened was when I was reading my fifth step, you know, there were some tears there and I was afraid. I was afraid my daughter was going to die. I was afraid I was going to die. I was afraid my marriage was going to end because of this, because I've heard of marriages that end because of a trauma, you know, a child gets murdered or lost in a car accident or something like that. And I was afraid my marriage was going to end. Excuse me. And it became clear to me that really my resentments are, you know, it says our roots have to grasp new soil. Well, my resentments were like roots and fear was the soil that they grew in and it was fertile. And it was nurturing. And, you know, it's like they both fed off each other. My fears would get bigger the more I was resentful and my resentments would get more powerful the more afraid I was. And so, you know, I had this thing where, you know, why can't she stop doing this? Why, you know, doesn't she see? Doesn't she see? And I knew that she was in pain. I mean, why would, you know, I was getting called three times a week at work. You've got to come and get her. You know, this or that or the other thing happened. Trips to the emergency room, emergency trips to the hospital, it was horrific, and um, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And, um, and finally, you know, when I had written my fourth step, I realized that I was just monstrously afraid. And, you know, at the end of, I read my fourth step, and, and you know, I was like, okay, I'm done. And my sponsor didn't, it was as though she was asking me to pass the salt at dinner. She said, do you notice any patterns here? And I was like... No. And she said, well, I do. She said, everything that you're afraid of, everything that you resent is either already done or in the future. And she said, the stuff that's in the past is gone, is done, is water over the dam. The stuff that's in the future, the only one who knows what's going to happen is God. Do you think you're God? There was a significant pause, but I reluctantly admitted that no, I did not think that. Um, And she said, well, that's what the answer is. And you know, I had already confessed as we were approaching step four that I wasn't sure this whole thing was going to work for me because I wasn't sure I believed in God. And she blew it off and she said, well, you haven't had a spiritual awakening yet, so you don't have to worry about that. So I, you know, I've said this to anybody who calls me. (laughs) I'm like, okay, she's the crazy one, but I'm going to do what she says because I hadn't been eating compulsively in several weeks or maybe a month or whatever it was until I got to the fourth. I hadn't eaten since I started the process, since I started calling a vision for you. And um, so, you know, I read my fifth step and I began to see that like it or not, I was going to have to look at it from a different perspective. And, you know, like the perspective of not me, basically. And I began to have more... um, more compassion for my daughter and um, still a tremendous amount of fear. But as I, you know, my spiritual awakening happened over many months and continues to happen. I continue to awaken, get more and more awake in this area. But um, I was able to see what her, that she was in her own prison and it wasn't, you know, eating a dozen donuts. It was, you know, cutting and burning and um it was hard to identify with because why would i why would i want to do that but i was able to um have some compassion for her and see things from her point of view and and you know separate myself from her life and and you know let her go her own way and just 
I cried and I cried and I cried. That's all I could say. My poor girl, she was doing this to herself and it was so painful for both of us. And, um, you know, it got a lot worse before it got better. And, um, you know, I'll say we went on a wonderful trip to Italy and she was at her sickest there. Um, And then we came back and two days later she was in the hospital for the rest of the summer and into the following school year. And I had to go visit her every night and then leave her there. And she hated that. And that was painful because I would have done anything. I would have sold my soul so that she could be okay. And my resentment was like simmering. It wasn't, I wasn't eating, but it was still alive and well. And, um, you know, when I defined what I wanted my higher power to be and what I wanted my higher power to do for me, that's when my spiritual sort of my spiritual roots began to grasp new soil. You know, they began to become a seedling. They got planted, whatever you want to say, whatever the metaphor is, they began, it began to get a little stronger. And I was able to say after I had talked about, um, you know, given my fifth step that on this particular resentment, um, you know, I only have one prayer and, um, and it works no matter what stage of the steps I'm in or whatever I, whatever, it works for everything. It's a one size fits all for me, for my life. And the prayer goes like this. I don't like this. I don't want things to be this way. And that's my prayer. And I always get the same answer from my higher power. And it's, I know, but I've got your back. And that shows me, it tells me that things are going to be okay, that that I'm going to be okay, and that she's going to be okay. And as I practiced that, you know, my surrender, you know, surrender starts with, you know, separating myself from her and letting her, you know, I think about that careering around the golf course, you know, like running around, like I just let her, I let her rip. And I watched her do all that and provided, you know, we were lucky enough to get into a therapeutic program and, you know, it was a huge time sink and very expensive. And, but um, she is today um, not engaging in that. And it taught me that I can let go of that. I, I don't like that letting go because like it has claw marks in it. You know, all my donuts that I ate, all my eating that I did, all my howling and crying, that's what letting go feels like. But I was able to surrender and let her do that and watch and, and you know, the, the resentment began to die. But my experience with resentments is that... Um, they're never really gone. They're waiting, not really waiting, but they're sort of, you know, I just know that I can remember them or I, I, I'm aware, I'm grateful for being separated from that resentment. But my daughter is a never ending um, supply of challenge for me and therefore a never ending opportunity for surrender. And, you know, I still, she was late coming down to dinner the other night and um, I assumed that she was in her room hanging herself. And that's super unpleasant to like live like that. But, um, you know, I work on that and I, um, and I am becoming less prone to think that way. Um, I may never be completely relaxed with her, 
but um, we have a pretty good relationship today, and um, and I'm free to just love her. And um, one last thing about that is that one of the things that <clears throat> you know that you know that another sort of resentment, sort of a half a resentment, is she breaks a lot of stuff that's precious to me. And um, this program, you know, my amend to my daughter was to let her do what she needed to do without putting any restraints on her. Like I didn't try to, you know, they advised me to put all the knives away. They advised me to put all, you know, like we don't have a plethora of razor blades in our house, but somehow she found my X-Acto blades or whatever, stuff that I used to scrape gunk off the stove and stuff like that. They advised us to put all that stuff away. And I wouldn't do that because, you know, I have to live my life myself. I have to cook and I have to do all that stuff. So my amend to her was that I... um, I let her do what she needed to do. I provided a ready ear and I assured her when she asked me for it, that it was going to get better and that she was going to be okay. And, um, you know, fast forward to this sort of newer resentment that's born of the same old resentment. You know, she breaks all this stuff. Some of, you know, like my mother's China stuff that I can't replace that sort of thing. And um, I'm reminded about that period of her life when she, was so sick and was, you know, cutting herself up. And and I am able to say, you know, from that same um, amends that I made when I, when I let her do what she needed to do, I don't um, confront any of that stuff because what do I want? Do I want a daughter who's healthy, who loves me, who will talk to me, who's with me, or do I want to be surrounded by stuff? And, um, you know, the electrons themselves seem to have more sense. That's what I thought of when I when I was thinking about that. So the only other thing that I have to say about my daughter is that um, it's one more reason that constant contact with my higher power and as importantly or more importantly is consistent contact with other compulsive overeaters. And the reason I say that it's as important or even more important is because I feel the presence of my higher power in my life most acutely when I'm working with, talking to, working the steps, listening to a 10-step, whatever, with another compulsive overeater. That um, is the way that I um, get in touch with my higher power. And I, you know, resentments today, I don't welcome them because they kind of suck, but, um, you know, what they do is they allow me their opportunities to get in touch with my higher power. This is an opportunity. This is not a challenge. This is an opportunity. And I have, I can say with, you know, the data show me, I'm data driven. The data show me that I haven't hurt myself with food in three years. And that's after 47 years of trying to do it some other way than complete surrender. And I have one other resentment that's mostly a sort of a happy, happy resentment, or it was a res- totally resentment, but it, that it was amazing what happened to me. My son has been spending way too much time with my butthead brother, who has not one but two Harley Davidsons, and has convinced my son that it would be a great idea to get a motorcycle. And in the mom department, that's really unpopular. And in the compulsive overeater department, it's even more unpopular because I'm, I don't have any control, you know, and, you know, again, it's my fear. What am I afraid of? You know, my fears, I'm not, I've said this on the phone. Anybody who's talked to me on the phone, forgive me, but, you know, I'm not afraid. When I go hiking, I'm not afraid that a mountain lion's going to eat me because I'm not a, like, deer or a squirrel or whatever they eat. 
So I'm not afraid of that. I'm afraid of human things, and I'm afraid of not getting enough, someone taking something away from me that I already have, other people's opinions, you know, human things, you know. And so um, when he said that he was going to, you know, get his license, I, I actually, I was self-seeking. I was afraid because I'm convinced he's going to die, and I'm self-seeking. I call, actually called my brother, who's actually not a butthead, he has a master's in industrial engineering and has a responsible job and owns a home and is great. But I called him up and I said, could you back off with the motorcycle talk? And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's who I am. I ride, you know, I, he rides his bike over to our house to see us. And, um, you know, so that avenue of manipulation was closed to me. And I thought to myself, you know, what do I want my higher power to do for me? And what do I want? So I want my higher power to make me into the things that I've decided that it is, you know, patience, patient, tolerant, generous, kind, you know, forgiving. And so, you know, it was like I could feel this machine that use, that usually just manufactures resentments, like grinding into action to try to get there. And I was able to say to my son, you know, he's kind of a one to sort of, you know, pick it a scab to say, I'm going to get my license. What do you think? And I, you know, I was careful not to like shriek and, you know, stab him with a knife. You know, I was careful not to do anything like that. I was happy, I'm happy to say. And, but I was able to say to him, you know, I'm afraid. And he said, I'm going to be careful. He said, I don't want to die either. And I said, I totally trust you, but I don't just don't want you to be, end up hamburger on the street. And he said, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to be careful. And I said, all I would ask of you is to be sensitive to my feelings about this. And he said, I can do that. I'll do that. And then I was able to email my brother and tell him. So not only did he put the idea and he offered to, you know, my son took a class and my brother offered to, um, you know, give him some time on the bike, you know, to help him. And I was able to email my brother and say that I knew that he knew what precious cargo he had and that I couldn't think of a better person to help and that I knew that he would teach him all the safest ways to be on a motorcycle. And, um, and just like that, at those two conversations, you know, the, the conversation in the email happened within 10 minutes. And just like that, my fears began to fall from me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm concerned and I'm, and I'm, you know, I wish it weren't that way, right? I don't like this. I don't want things to be this way. I know I've got your back. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Nancy, for sharing your experience with us. Now I welcome Rick J., panelist number two. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Rick J. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Cary, North Carolina. Wow. I guess my higher power needed me to to um to be looking at this um yeah i have a resentment that i've been doing some work on through the years um yeah nurturing the resentment and then uh working on it uh this has to do with my mother um and it started when i was about six years old um she woke my sister and I up in the middle of the night. We were living in Charleston, South Carolina. My father was a Navy officer there. We were in the Navy housing. But she woke us up, 
and and was in this like frantic state. I I could hardly understand her, you know, and I was half asleep and she was just quick. We've got to leave the house now. And I mean, it was, I don't know what time it was, but it was in the middle of the night. And my father was uh, working at the Navy base. And uh, she said, we, we only have a little bit of time, but we've got to escape here. She was telling us that my father was a monster. He was going to kill us. And, um, you know, she, she just was like racing us out of the house. We still had her pajamas on barefoot. And we went into the woods behind our house and, you know, this, this tangly briar, dark woods. And we were just like racing through the woods and I, I was in shock. And my sister, who was uh, four at the time, I think, um, you know, was was crying for us to slow down. And I realized my mother had picked me up and was carrying me and my sister was getting left behind. And I, I was just completely freaking out. And I, my whole world just turned upside down. And uh, we went um, on on this, uh, this crazy uh, night woods run um, into the morning and the police uh, spotted us crossing a road and uh, picked us all up and took us back um, to where my father was waiting. And and this dad, you know, of mine was my hero. I loved him very much. And I was so happy to see him, and I went running to him. And then I stopped. I I just the last thing I had heard was that he was a monster and was trying to kill us. So I just stopped, and I did not know what to do. And the blurry aftermath of of this trauma was that my mother actually was hospitalized for about a year. She was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And uh, my sister went to uh, live with my grandmother, uh, and my grandfather came to stay with us. And I had just started the first grade. I can tell you that this little crew cut kid with the big ears, you know, I would show up to class and I would sit down and I could not hear anything that was being said. I, it just, it was just background noise. I was in this state of being completely just numb and in shock and this total fear and terror. I was, I was afraid I'd never see my mother again. I was afraid that my father was going to kill me. I didn't know where, when I would see my sister again my grandfather, who is a, a kind man, but sort of distant and remote, um, you know, was doing the best he could. And my father was very busy and, and was gone a lot and was actually would go out to sea for periods of the time. And um, I was in a world that I could not comprehend and I could not relate with. So as my mother was released a year later, she uh with really good drugs and a lot of therapy, a lot of help. She actually had another relapse, which sort of perpetuated this whole process. And all I wanted was things in my family to get back to normal. Why can't I just have this normal life? And I would, I would be, you know, with other kids and I'd be kind of with them, but not really like connected to them. And they all just seemed happy, and they'd be talking about going home and having dinner or something they were doing. And and I I had no idea, you know, for a long time 
number one, would I ever even see my mother? Was she crazy? Was my father going to kill me? Um, and then two, it was after she came back, you know, this fear of, you know, it happening again. And this fear of, a, I guess, this, this abandonment, this, this sense of disconnection, this, I guess, emotional shock. It was, um, it just kept perpetuating itself in my life you know, and, and kind of growing there. So my mom would be trying her best with a severe mental illness to, you know, to love me and my sister when we were back together and she had been hospitalized for the second time. Um, and there was a part of me that began getting angry at her and I started blaming her for everything. I blamed her for the bullies that used to beat me up. I blamed her for uh, making terrible grades because I could not concentrate in class. I just started blaming her for everything, and I didn't realize how deep-rooted this resentment was until I myself was in the Navy, and I was overseas and in some port, and I think it was Italy, actually. And uh, I, I had bought my... Uh, mother a, a beautiful uh, handcrafted cameo and I wanted to give it to her you know couldn't wait uh, you know I just wanted to do something nice and then I went out drinking with my friends you know we were off a ship and the next morning I could not find that cameo anywhere and I was like sick because I I really wanted to do something nice for her and I I was all proud that I had picked it out. It was from another you know country, and it was handcrafted and all this stuff. And um, anyway, it was gone. And when I met up with my friends, they were like, "Rick, uh, what in the world is up with you and your mother?" <laughs> and I just was like, "Oh my God, what?" And I guess after you know I'd gotten really drunk, I I started screaming how much I hated her. And I took the cameo and I threw it up against a brick wall and then I just was stomping on it and smashing it to pieces. You know, and I have no memory of that. But that's the kind of feelings that I was stuffing in and I was trying. I was trying to to be a son and to love her, but there was a part of me that could not. So years go by and I end up getting sober. And I remember trying to do this uh this resentment inventory. Um, with a sponsor at the time who, although uh, he was a decent man, but he was not walking me through the steps, uh, you know, the way it's laid out in the big book. I was basically just sort of releasing a lot of my pent-up rage and fear and describing the story in great detail. Um, and I even went to, to try to make an amends to my mother for my part and she couldn't talk about it. So I actually added that to my whole resentment list of, hey, look at me. I tried to make an amends to my mother, and she wouldn't even take it and couldn't talk about it. And so that just sort of added to this fuel, this self-centered fuel of, you know, I'm, I was a victim. Look what she did to me. It was all about me, and it affected everything in my life. It affected every relationship I ever had, certainly with women. So about a year ago, I uh, 
after being in and out of Overeaters Anonymous for quite a while, and I've met some very dear people who have uh, who've listened to parts of this story and I've been able to to share with them um, in a in a way that was releasing. And my sponsor, um, who is still my sponsor in OA today, he's a vision guy. The problem has been removed. Helped me go through this process of really looking at um, my part in this and to go through these steps. And I was getting really good at, uh, you know, what the cause was, you know, and what it affected. And yes, of course, it affected my self-esteem and my security, my ambitions, my personal relations, my sex relations. And there was fear so much fear all the time, you know, this deep-rooted fear of abandonment that was perpetuating everything and affecting all my relationships with everybody. Um, and, you know, going through this with with my, my sponsor, um, you know, I was able to, you know, to say, you know, the, uh, you know, the sick man's prayer and, you know, and, and mom... Um, you know she's she's not spiritually sick she was mentally ill and i can just say you know um please god help me show my mother the same tolerance pity and patience i would cheerfully grant a sick friend and of course she is sick you know and she is a sick woman and she cannot help it how can i be helpful to her god save me from being angry I will be done, you know, and so uh, that took me through these three columns, and then the one column that I had never done before was that fourth column where I put out of my mind the wrong others have done to me or I perceived them doing to me, and I resolutely looked for my own mistakes. Where had I been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? So I, I could see my selfishness clearly. You know, I could only see what she did to me. I was this victim. I was dishonest in that I did not acknowledge her mental illness, her paranoid schizophrenia, her own powerlessness, or especially her attempts to love me and mother me later. Self-seeking, you know, in that I would seek sympathy and special attention when telling this story to others. You know, when I was frightened, you know, I was frightened of being vulnerable, of loving her, of trusting her. You know, so these were parts of me that I had not been acknowledging and owning for myself. And that's what kept blocking me, you know, from the sunlight of the spirit. And going through this, this inventory process, this searching and fearless inventory process, you know, is the fourth step is just the beginning, you know. I mean that's that's the first that's the first step in this inventory process. You know, and then when I admitted to my sponsor and to God and to myself the exact nature of these wrongs, including that fourth column, you know, that was where that release began, that release of, of these things that were keeping me in prison basically. These bedevilments. 
You know, I, I was, like it says on page 52. I was a prey to misery and depression. You know, I did feel useless, and I was full of fear and unhappy. You know, um, and I didn't want to live in this way anymore. So once I admitted that, you know, I was entirely ready to have God remove this from me. Truly ready. And humbly asking him, you know, this, this humbly asking, this humility, this being teachable, this sort of uh, this emotional release in that I am completely powerless over this. I want to change. This is my part, and I come to you, you know, in that prayer. My creator, I'm now willing that you have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character with my mother that prevents me from being useful to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding, to be of maximum service, to be the best son I can possibly be with my mother. And then looking at those harms that I did, those times that I rejected her, that I rejected her own attempts to make amends to me, this power that I had over her. And now as a parent, I know the harm that that did. So in the amends process, um, she is in her mid-80s now, and she's suffering from dementia, which is extreme now. And, and any mention of this in the past would only do her harm. So I wrote a letter to her. I wrote a letter telling her about my own part in this and how I acknowledged how hard she's tried you know, through the years. And this letter, I've, I read it to my sponsor, and, you know, and I immediately began feeling the promises, you know, a new freedom and a new happiness. And then that final bookend promise, we, I suddenly realized that God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. And, of course, I can tell my mother I love her. And what a good mother she is. I mean, I can do that all the time, and she loves that. I don't need to go into detail about the connection with the past. You know, I can be there for her. And then I can also see how my own alcoholism and my own compulsive overeating has affected them and how I was sick and how they continually loved me and were there for me. And then going in the other direction with two children, my son who's 20, my daughter who's 18, and... I could relate with a lot with Nancy. I'm a little bit different, but my, my daughter was hospitalized for anorexia in February, right when quarantine began, and um, she was on her way to a hospital with a feeding tube. And uh, thankfully, we were able to get her into a residency treatment center. Didn't see her for two months. She would call begging us to come get her. We wouldn't. Uh, we could just love her and know that she was getting the help she needed. And now, after her recent relapse, and she's back in, you know, she's been accepted into two colleges, and I'm not even sure if she's going to be able to finish high school. And I'm having to let this go, and I'm having to love her and be the father that she needs to be there for her and to understand 
that there's nothing that she's doing to me. She is, she's sick, just like I am, just like my mother is. And what I'm going to do is be there and let him, let her know at all times that I love her, but also to, to advocate for her and to be there and to take the actions that need to be taken, even though they're hard. And I am sometimes overcome with fear and Thank God for step 10, and I probably say that every day. It leads me back into, oh, okay, this is coming up. I can talk to my sponsor. I can talk to other people. I continue this inventory process. We can't stop. We have to continue this inventory process. And we go on with 11 and increase that connection, and we carry this message. It's a beautiful dance, and thank you, everyone, for being there. Um, With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rick J., for sharing with all of us. I now welcome panelist number three, Melanie C. Uh, Good morning. Hello. My name is Melanie C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I was contemplating this idea of the bondage of resentment, and I'm thinking about the kind that I thought was gone, would go away, and it wasn't gone. (laughs) It hadn't gone away. And oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I can tell you that I lived through thinking that each one that had ever been on any resentment list was gone. I had been freed from. And then it would come to pass that a thought of mine or a conversation with another person would come up about him or her or them. And then bam, I'd be right in again, right in it again. I couldn't understand how come. Inside or outside expressing it, it didn't matter. Here I was seeing that I was not free. It turns out that I have had several long-standing resentments like these and through the years in, rec- in recovery, as I would revisit the, each 12 steps, I would notice that another long-standing resentment would not be showing up on the next house cleaning and I was grateful for that. This 12 steps um, gave access to God and it worked. I was transformed in these matters and I was so grateful. But there were four that even after weeks of saying that the resentment prayer over them would come up every single time that I'd run through the steps again. And worse yet, would just, just, they just hung out inside my heart, cloaked as being free. They had reduced in frequency, intensity, and duration from this work that I had been doing through the 10-step processes. And I would think that I would be fine. I just felt like I was relieved. I would begin to think that all was well, and that the last inventory really worked. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. It, it worked this time. Or that last kind of 10 st- step that I did, I really dug in tight and it flipped the spiritual sw- switch on it and turned me around. Well, only to find on any given day again, not a problem on the horizon and a mention of the name was all it would take. That's what I call real bondage. Real bondage. These resentments were just underground, and I think that's where the most dangerous, cunning places are, and the consequences, even underground, are dangerous, absolutely dangerous for me. I was truly blocked, unwilling to surrender. Who am I blocking? Well, it's blocking God. And who is it affecting? Everyone. Everyone. Especially my spiritual and emotional growth to love. Just because I did not remember, or what is not in my face, 
I was equally bound and captive, preventing freedom from becoming mine and theirs. One that tears me apart the most, I don't know if it was the most, but it surely, surely has ripped me apart, is unquestionably, it has unquestionably ruled me and diminished me and him and harmed others because I was clearly still angry. This one is against my son. I had written his life out in an entirely different path than what he has taken. My precious little darling, he's a 42-year-old man now, I had harbored these building resentments since he was two years old when he would not follow my script. This hard-headed little guy, I would say to him, I'd like for you to go this way, and he would always choose another. When he was nine, he was so difficult in school and pulled some shenanigans, leading me to think that I could not trust him. Uh, He was so adorable, but very, very hard to love. And when he was 13, I became so embarrassed because he favored skateboards over the conventional football, and he dressed differently, and he wore his hair a certain way, a certain way at the time, magnificent colors and all matted up, And that was the year that he also tried marijuana for the first time. I was so angry. And he was a member of some sort of anarchist group. I think that was primarily in his mind, but he associated himself with this anarchist group. And that resentment grew and I grew and it grew. I I was resentful when I took this young man wedged in the back seat between his policeman uncle and his stepfather to a lockdown treatment facility at 16 years old. And the resentment grew, and it grew, and it grew. The final straw lays at the feet of our grandson. Decades later, and it has been so hard, the trials, the places that have we have gone with all of these things in his life clear up to he was 42 years old. My twisted thinking was so warped on this one, on this guy. And I tried, I swear that I tried to let him go. It took 12 steps every single year on him, 10 steps uh, every season on him. Like I said, he was on every inventory that I ever would ever would do. And I would think that I'd be turned and I'd be freed from him and he would be from me. And I think that I'd be seeing the light of God, convinced of my part, which it was always my part. I was convinced, but I was miserable. A mention of the name, of his name, the promises that I made not to assassinate his character anymore, it'll be blown out the window. And I miss him. I miss him. You see, he has been estranged from me for four years. Flesh in my flesh, bone in my bone. And I was tortured by my own resentment. Remembering just how precious he is. Ah, gosh, the memories. You know, you have some of those your own. Gosh, how precious the memories. The resentment of mine became beyond ludicrous, reckless and foolish of me. I must be freed of this. I've learned so much in these rooms, you know, that the resentment is mine. How come I needed to be so angry at nothing? For nothing. How come I put this, whatever this is, onto this person? It was delusional, ridiculous, stuck. I'm just stuck. I would say things like, well, 
I've done it this time. I've gone through the steps. And if it's lifted, it'll be in God's time. It's up to God. You know, whatever is going on in my life, it's not by mistake. It's all going to be God. And I'll just go about my business in the meantime. And I'll serve others and act my way into right living with him, around him, absent of him because he's estranged. Nope. Lie that I'd be telling myself to think that this resentment was lifted and it was gone. Well, what happened? I find that the resentment truly never existed. It didn't exist. This all happened inside of me. I was single-handedly preventing God from reaching me to treat what was clearly diseased by harboring a false resentment and placing it onto this guy. Taking the fourth step to a new level, placing it squarely in front of me, resentful at, name the name. The resentment is, name the resentment. I hate him because, name the resentment. The playbook never changes. <laughs> it never changes. But I did. Finally, I did. I am looking at it from an entirely different point of view. The glasses have finally been turned around. So how do you look at this resentment now, Melanie? Once the resentment has taken hold, and now I'm looking at column three, is always clearly the manifestation i.e. the evidence of an activated disease. The moment, the moment that I go into resentment, I am no longer processing reality, I'm never reasoning with any accuracy, and I have no idea what's before me, but man, oh man, am I convinced that I'm it, that I'm right. This is how I power act in behavior or thought when the disease has been threatening me. I'm not, I'm not myself. I'm completely acting in disease, and I can't see what I can't see that's not coming from him. What in you needs to be threatened, Melanie? What in you needs to be threatened? What are you getting off on this? What's the payoff on this thing? How come you're choosing to blame him? How come he's the one you have your times in today? Self-esteem, the role that I've assigned myself is how I see this. We're talking about the areas of threat in column three, which are self-esteem, the role that I've assigned, the security, financially, emotional, my ambitions, my personal relations, my sex ideals, acceptable and un unacceptable. Those are the things in column three where the disease acts out that I can identify what it is and find out what it is that I need. What's the payoff? The role that I've assigned myself in this relationship is some sort of demigod. I owned him. I needed to have somebody to satisfy this urge in me to own somebody or something. This is what I believed anyway. In some way, what I perceived as imperfections to my script, I was threatened. On high alert, the ego had gone amok. I had so much ego wrapped up into this guy. If it responded to me in a certain way each time, I would be okay. And that's what I was looking for. I needed, I was, un, I was not okay. And so now I'm going to be okay. And I latched onto him. And in order to, to make that happen, I had to perfect him in that image supernatural and if he did not a price had to be paid it would be paid who paid the price he did and i did the weapons were double-edged swords my love became so warped that i twisted him all up into knots the anger became the high 
another source so subtle, so cunning, and so deep. I did not come to him as being a separate loving entity, a human being. It was not owned by me. I placed the burden on him so heavy that he crumbled underneath the weight of it all. Step five showed me the any length that I would be going to to satisfy a drive like that of insanity. Blind or conscious to force another human being to be anything at all for me was insane. This man was simply being a human conducting his own life's journey with no one to guide him. He hit some bumps, some hard bumps along the way. We all do. I just want to insert an idea here that was, I think, kind of, oh, was kind of whimsical. Ah, maybe, maybe comical, but maybe not. One time when I was discussing this with this work with my sponsor again, she's a very, very wise woman. Uh, this is during a series of a, a couple of weeks that she talked me through this kind of idea, and we were working through some steps with my son again. She asked me. She says, Melanie, just curious. How old were you when you came into recovery? And I was curious. I just answered, ah, almost 50. And she would simply reply, oh, okay, okay. And then a day or so later, she would say to me during our work, ah, Melanie, remind me, how old is your son? And at the time, he was 39, I would say. And she would simply say, hmm, okay, okay, all right. And she would ask us a few more times over the course of a couple of weeks. And I grew weary of answering the question, it, thinking that she was kind of losing her mind since I just told her this several times before and she couldn't simply remember. And then it finally dawned on me. It finally dawned on me what she was doing, this wise woman. I was 50. He's 39. Give room for God to do his work. Melanie, give room for God. I could not surrender to recovery until I was 50. And this guy is 39. And he has his own God. I did not show up for him. I could not show up for him. But God can if I could step out of the way. Step six revealed a deeper truth about the active disease and on my knees took step seven with this guy. You know where in step 12, in the 12 and 12, when it says families are reunited by the AA way of life, how many of you like me thought that would only that this only means in the conventional sense, that we would have that happy ever after kind of situation here and and we would be reunited again and, and he would be at my home for Christmas this Christmas and he would find his God and he would be well and I would find my God and I would be well. Well, we were reunited when the heart has been shifted to unconditional love uh, and respect. You're reunited. Whether I can see the son of mine ever again or not, we are united by unconditional love. I have made several sincere amends to him over the years, and he's always graciously accepted them. My resentment has been lifted by God during this time of estrangement. It never belonged to my son anyway. It has always been me, a manifested manifestation of untreated deep disease. 
with no contact with him, I still have a step nine. The process has taken on a most creative opportunity, and I think I've shared about it on the lines in different ways. God has directed me to live out my life giving to his son, our grandson, excuse me, and his sons, our grandson's new family. My ex-daughter-in-law, can you believe it? My ex-daughter-in-law, her new husband, his teenage daughter, and their newest addition, a brand new precious baby girl, unconditionally in the honor of my son. Each day I have an opportunity to be in front of this wonderful family to serve. How can I be helpful to them today? How can I be helpful? How can I lift the burden of being a new mama? How can I be a joy to the to the my ex daughter laws new husband? How can I show up for my son's son and these precious people? Can I fix a meal this week so they don't have to do so when they come home from work? Can I wash the laundry? Can I gum and help clean a house? What can I do? You might remember me telling you that my ex-daughter-in-law looks to us as her parents, the kind that she never had, she says. And she has asked us to be the grandparents of her children and her future children. They're building a family together. And we have been reunited, my son and I, because of OA, these 12 steps, and most especially steps four through nine, and a God that is reliable. This one has truly been a breakthrough and has humbled me to my knees. You see, there is pain there. You can hear it in my tears, yet the pain is rich and it's full and it's free. And I love this young young man. He's 42 years old. I love him so much. And I don't get to see him. And I do not know if I'll ever see him again, like I was saying. I have no demand on that. I am okay either way, but my heart loves him. And every day that I hold his son, I reach him. We've had the privilege of caring for our grandson since he was two days old. And each day has been a living amends. The family was completely blown apart during the time of the need for them, for my ex-daughter-in-law and him to, to divorce. And she didn't think that she was ever going to be able to see me other than her ex-husband's mother, who is not to be trusted. But we are building such a wonderful life together. We're building memories. Just last night, we bundled up the Suburban and we headed out to see a huge light display of holiday lights. Can I sit with you, grandmother? Come play with me, grandmother. Can I go with you to, for a sleepover to the farm? grandmother let's go see the chickies grandmother you've got to go on another adventure grandmother come play with me this little guy this little guy is an individual he's a strong smart and full of energy he has a way of wanting to do things that are different than his grandmother's and my guidance from him well 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 who would have thought a bona fide second chance to do this thing better All along, I grew to know that the source of my unhappiness was my untreated disease, the way in which it ravages my body, 
my mind, and most especially my soul. It robbed me of the ability to see another person's heart and be considerate of that with my son. It robbed me of precious relationships because of the way the disease manifests itself in self-centeredness. The seemingly inability to choose you over me and know that this is the better way to self. It took such a toll on my son through me. In this resentment where I could not let go of digging up false, false faults and blemishes and undesirable features to justify my wholeness. I may have spoiled the chance of being in my son's company ever again, but because of God, through the 12 steps, we have been reunited and I have been blessed. All of the serious lectures, the therapies, the rages, the estrangement, the threats did nothing to change the trajectory of God's spiritual path for him. But all the damage perhaps spoiled things for us. Hurt, destroyed, never brought us closer together. Never. It tore us apart. But pressed into God because I cannot rightly relate to him or anyone on my own. I will guide myself right down that dark path again minus God and hurt people. God makes it possible to live this parallel life to disease and increase and enlarge love, unconditional love, pressed into God. This will be, this will continue to be extended to my son, absent him, but towards his son and the family that we're building our memories and our life with. My son deserves that. And with that, I pass. Thank you so very much, Melanie C., for sharing your personal experience with all of us. Thanks to all three panelists for your extraordinary examples of our spiritual work of the 12 steps and the power of God leading to your transformation and freedom. Thank you so very much. Share ID for today's presentation, 16,028. That's 16028. The contact information for our panelists will be given at the conclusion of the recording. We will now transition to question and answer segment with the remainder time that we have. Press star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the initial of your last name, for you to pose a question. Lee H. Lee H. Clea J. I didn't catch your first name. Clea J. Clea J. Okay, thank you. M J. Metris J. Metris J. Okay. Lydia T. Lydia T. Nancy L. Nancy L. Okay, let's stop there since our time is brief. Beginning with Lee H. Everybody else, please mute. Thanks. Good morning, Leah, and thank you for the service. Thank you so much for this panel. It has been powerful this morning. Um, I'm just particularly struck with just the honesty about what is the high that I get by holding on to the resentment. But um, I have a particular question for Rick J. Um, I was writing down the dishonesty part. That's the part I struggle with, is really getting honest. You know, that what is the dishonesty? And uh, so could you just go over the, you know, your inventory with what 
what were you? How were you being dishonest about your mom? Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you for the question. I appreciate that. So, yeah, my dishonesty was not acknowledging um, my mother's own uh, mental illness. What what she was going through. So when when I would share this story with with people, or when I would remember this story and think back on it, I, all I could think about is what she did to me. I was not conceding that she was completely as powerless over her disease as I am over mine, and I was not acknowledging the attempts that she made through the years to be a mother to me and to love me. And I did not acknowledge that I was denying her own amends. I was not accepting them. And that was the biggest part of my dishonesty is not seeing, you know, uh, my role in this, not seeing my fourth column in this. Um, With that, I pass. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lee H. Quia J. Uh, yes. Um, my question, I really, first of all, thank you all for your service. Um, uh, it just really hit home. I needed it. But one of the things um, I was thinking about is when will I intuitively know what to do when situations arise, you know, the part of the promises. And, um, and what I kept thinking about was before I get to the resentment place, um, and I have a tendency to, you know, my father, who is now gone, you know, he has been a role model for me because he was always very good, always easy to forgive, very giving and loving. And, um, but when he got, when people, like people like say, oh, they're taking advantage. He said, they can't take advantage because once I'm done giving, I don't give anymore. And so I've had a tendency to kind of use that, but it also has, um, caused me to have resentment. So I'm thinking, how do I learn how to set healthy boundaries? Um, and it sounds like I was thinking about the woman with her son. It sounds like um, that was one of the things sometimes we have to do in, in program with family and with friends is to also know how to set those healthy boundaries, which I am probably clueless with. So I was wondering if any of the panel could speak to that. I can I can answer that. Okay, Nancy, why don't you Nancy go ahead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. When will it become? You know, when will you get the intuitive thought? And my answer to that is my well, my own experience is with practice. I mean, you know, I do an eleven step every night. I do this work every day. This is not one and done, and that's a perfect example of how if you do this work, the answers will come if you work for them. It says so right in the book. There's nothing that. That, th- that isn't in the book right there in black and white. Um, you know, the thing, like my experience with my own son with the motorcycle stuff, I mean, I literally thought I was doing a good job by not shrieking in rage and stabbing him with a knife when he told me he was going to do that. I literally thought that. I was like, how can I stop this? I'll, I'll stab him and he'll never do it, you know? I mean, the intuitive thought then came because I've done this for, you know, steadily it, with more and more... Um, fidelity to the to what the book says to do every with every day i mean i don't take a break from this ever 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 and um 
so it has become a working part of my mind. Most of my, um, you know, in particular, my, you know, the thought of eating compulsively, I never think about that ever, 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 ever under any circumstances. I just, you know, finished my Christmas baking, my holiday baking as usual for the fourth Christmas in a row, the fourth holiday season in a row. I didn't have so much as a chocolate chip, a sprinkle or a jimmy, not one. So, you know, check. But what about the other stuff? Like, you know, dealing with my son, dealing with my still, you know, not difficult, but challenging daughter, dealing with my husband, you know, everything, my job search, like all that stuff comes with practice. You know, I always wanted to start at the end and backfill. I wanted to know the big book. I wanted to be able to say the page numbers. I wanted to say all that, like that was going to, what was going to make sure that I was recovered is to be able to do that stuff. But no, what I've found over the, you know, the three years that I've, um, that I haven't hurt myself with food is that practice, practice, practice. There's no other, you know, how did you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. I mean, I do it all the time. And then suddenly it snuck up on me and I found myself at the end without having to backfill anything in the past because I do this work every day. It's not one and done. I practice. And sometimes I make mistakes. I absolutely do. And I have to go back and do it again. You know, an administrator's worst enemy is rework. But you know what? That's what I have to do sometimes. But, you know, because I have contact, constant contact with both my higher power and other compulsive overreaders, I do less and less of rework as the as the time goes on. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Queen this Jay. Is, this is Melanie. May I add a, add a little bit, too? Melanie, go ahead. I wanted to just add that, um, add on to what Nancy was saying, that my, my work is not done. I, I do this every day. And and everything that that I've learned to do here is with intention. Um, I you talk about where to set boundaries. Well, I have learned that I certainly have boundaries that I can only set on myself. Um, as you heard with my particular story with my son, <laughs> trying to set a boundary with somebody else is, is is that they have a different idea about those things. And so, with the work with my sponsor, I would be finding out, you know, what would it be that I can do? Where is the limit of what I was available? And like Nancy was saying, I had to learn that over time, but I made sure that when situations came up that um, I did the work. I went through the steps to be sure that I was loving, kind, and it was from God and um, and talked it over with another person, typically my sponsor, to come up with a, uh, an idea about how I proceed in a relationship with, with different people. And they were all different, as yours would be as well. Um, the idea that um, anything that I go into now, I've learned that I can predict with pretty much with some sort of accuracy what the outcome is going to be because I'm still the same person. And so I would have something going into a situation before I'd ever go on myself, limitations for myself. I'll just give a simple one, and this is not very deep at all, but um, I have a a family member that I love. I love very much, and um, I have about a, a 60 minute, about a 60 minute time that I put myself in front of, and I, my sponsor knows before going in what it is that I'm that I'm going to be doing, and then and then and then coming out, I have a plan to to protect my to protect myself to make sure that I can maintain and stay in my higher self. And so those are just some ideas that I have. Thank you, Melanie, and uh, thanks, Quia J, for the question. Mitris J. Star one to unmute. Good morning, everyone. Glad to be here. I could relate to every last one of the speakers. 
I lost a cousin at a young age in a motorcycle accident, and I deal with mental health issues with family members. Um, And I have three adult daughters who blames me for everything, and I don't know if our relationship would ever mend. But I wanted to ask Melanie, um, I'm holding resentments to the point that I want to throw my hands up and say, forget this relationship with all of them, that I never want to talk to them again. And it may not ever work. I don't know. But I do know that God wants me to do my part. How can I? Yes, thank you. If you could just boil it down to a question in the interest of time, please. Thank you. Yes, for sure. How can I do my part with love and serenity, even though I know that it may not ever come together? It may or may not. I would like to ask Melanie that. Hi, thank you, Mutris. You're talking, uh, yeah. (laughs) I am famous for for amputating people from my life. Uh, That's just the way that it just gets really bold and really strong, then I'll just cut them off, you know, because it's clearly their fault. Clearly their fault, and in recovery I've learned differently. And there's a process to it all, a process of, of meeting God with this. I cannot afford a hard heart. I can't. Um, it deepens my disease, and it's typically not them. It's typically not them. And so we looked at my part, always my part in the four-step review, and if it continues to come up, I continue to go to a 10-step. I continue to get on my knees. I get serious about what? This disease of mine. This disease of mine and the expectations I had for somebody to be different than who and what I want them to be. And I needed a new way of seeing things. I could only see the way that I could see, and I needed to be free and see a different way. Um, with my son in particular, I um, had all kinds of ideas of what I was going to do. And man, did I cut him off many, 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 many times. So what happened as a result of that sort of thing, until I was able to get to a different spiritual plane, I had lots of work in front of me to do if I were ever to be in front of him again. I learned very early on in these, in these rooms Restraint of tongue and pen. Nothing pays off on it. You can read about it in your 12 and 12 on page 90, 91. Um, Bite my tongue, bite my tongue, bite my tongue. Um, And then call my sponsor right after to say I was able to, by God's grace and mercy, never to say a thing. I made it through, I made it through, I made it through. And then something happened to me. Something happened to me in my heart. They never changed. I I was able to learn. My mother, when she passed, was my very, very bestest sweetheart ever from a, from a place of darkness and complete hatred of her to where she was my sweetheart. That's what this process did to me. And it was step by step by step. I got myself a sponsor that kicked my behind that helped me through these kinds of things. And I, I hope that answers your question, but I couldn't afford the hardened heart, I'll tell you that. And the work set me free. Find somebody that will help set you free. From this because I would adventure a guest like me, it's not them. Thank you. Thanks so much. I pass. Thanks, Mitris. Appreciate it. Lydia T., your turn. 
Hi, <clears throat> this is Lydia. Oops, we lost you, Lydia. Star one to unmute. Can you hear me now? I do. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just want to thank everybody for their service. I'm so grateful that this meeting is here for me to listen to on Sunday morning to fill me up. Thank you, everybody. My question is for Melanie. And um, I, too, have a, I have three sons. My oldest son is an addict. Um, you know, eating disorders, drinking, God only knows what. I was able to let him go, but he was an adult. I have a 14, almost 15-year-old at home who is displaying depression, anxiety, drug use, um, restricting food, and I'm having a very difficult time knowing what's mine. But my higher power spoke to me last night and thought, well, maybe if he is smoking pot, that's what's going to allow him to survive. And I know that's a dark, deep thought, but I had it. That might be what helps him to survive this and be able to get old enough to get recovery. Um, I just want to know if you have any thoughts regarding Yeah, um, I have. Hi, Lydia. Thank you. I have um, some experience there. I wasn't in recovery at the time, but I did know that as a parent, I needed to um, to step in to 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 provide for him every every opportunity to grab a hold of something if he was going to be doing that. And so when um, we found out that he was using marijuana, and by the time he was 16, we had him in lockdown treatment. Um, uh, we were we had to step in as parents to to provide that sort of thing for him, um, and that was the right the right thing to do. Now it didn't stop my resentments and 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 all the subsequent things that came as a result of that because um, he still needed to go farther and, and farther and farther. You know, with a 14 year old, I'm not done for sure, not done being a parent. But by the time he was in his 20s and 30s, I was able to say that in and now at 42, the miracle that happened to me is that. He has a path. He has a path in his life that is um, spiritual in its nature that God is taking him on, and he needed to take every single twist and turn in order to get where he's going to be going. Um, but yet at 14 years old and 15 years old and 16 years old as a parent, we stepped in to do some pretty heavy-duty things to interrupt a process, a pattern of things that might be going on for him. We didn't ignore it. Yeah. Thank you, Lydia T., for your question. Nancy L. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Nancy L. from Maryland. Um, thank all, thank you all three of you. You um, touched my heart in so many ways. Uh, I was quite amazed at how many of uh, the shares dealt with um, relationships with um, parents and kids because um, those relationships are so different than any relationship that we have with anybody else. Um, my question also um, is, is so similar to um, ones that others have, have posed. I have a um, 23-year-old who is still financially dependent on myself and my ex-husband who um, suffers from mental illness and is not um, uh, pursuing a full course of treatment. And I... Um, and all three of your shares um, touch so closely on how important it is to do the step work around resentments. Um, I related um, so much on um, Nancy's point about a lot of resentments coming from fear and Rick's point about being the parent that our children need. And I work really hard to 
to balance between being um, controlling and demanding on one end of the spectrum and being enabling on the other end of the spectrum. And I'm constantly working to make sure I get that balance. Um, my question is, you know, our responsibilities as parents um, include guiding them, and I work really hard in a recovered manner to try to help my daughter um, um, see the lies that her 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 disease is telling her. Nancy, and can I, we I, come yeah. to a question? And I, and I, Thank you. I I I fear that she may form resentments over that. Is 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 my fear founded? Um, and I put her in the guide box. Where is our responsibility towards guiding our adult children? This is Rick. I I'll just jump in there real quick. You know, for for my daughter, who you know is 18 years old. Um, she's a senior in high school. She lives at home, and technically, she's an adult now. And when she first went into treatment back in February, she was 17 and didn't have much say so in it. And uh, now, when she's she's back in uh, her partial hospitalization treatment, and she sort of had a moment of clarity and, and she's like, wait a minute, um, you know, I don't want to do this, you know, and, and we talked to her and like, you know, she acknowledged that she needed help, but she's also dependent upon us and she's living in our home. And there are things that we needed for her to do. And that was just, uh, there was no question about that for, for us. And, and we told that to her with love and we are, working with her and trying to let her have as many, uh, you know, like choices as far as certain things go. And, and so she's not just, uh, you know, being ramrodded and, and just pigeonholed into all kinds of different, um, I guess, labels and feeling that she is, has got a little bit of, of say so, but at the same time as her parents, you know, with love and boundaries, and Al-Anon, you know, just saying what we need for her to do and then continually working ourselves. And for me as, as a father, you know, I, I have so many triggers with her when her disease is talking to me that my first self-centered reaction is in anger. You know, how dare you say that? How dare you talk to me that way after I've done this? And, and that's my self-centered fear and my own resentment and my own past coming up. But the love and compassion that I have for her, you know, this is a sick person and she needs help and she needs guidance. And how do I help her in love to truly get what she needs? And it's not what I say, it's how I say it so many times that can cause a disconnect. So I'm, I continually do steps 10 and 11 on this uh, to keep aligned with God and to keep my boundaries and my perspective clear and spiritually aligned so uh, for me it's just a process but having to see her you know in in the full scope of her life where she's coming from and also seeing what she needs and trying to do the best even though she doesn't always like it is is something that I have to continually get help and there's a lot of people on the line right now listening who um, I've reached out to and have shared their own experience, strength, and hope. So I, I cannot do this alone, but I have to do it with God's help and your help. I pass. 
This is Nancy P. I have something that I could add to that. Go ahead, Nancy. Um, yeah. So in my own case, with in my own situation, uh, just what Rick said, I'm not alone. And um, not only am I not alone, like I have my higher power, I have other fellows, but there are professionals out there that know far more about this type of thing than I do. And, um, you know, the people that were involved, you know, the professionals that were involved in my own family situation, you know, I didn't call them offline and, and whine and say, what am I going to do? Oh, my God, you know, any of that stuff. But I asked them point blank and, you know, when we were all together, like, what is, what do you think is the best? This is how this makes me feel. I don't feel you know, I don't want this, or I, I don't feel like this is reasonable. And we sort of came, they gave me feedback that was helpful to me. I mean, I don't tell my sponsees what to eat. I, t- I advise them to go to a professional, a doctor or a nutritionist. And, and the same thing, you know, I love the book. The book says we treat every problem the same. Like it talks about the sex inventory, blah, 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 blah. In other words, we treat it just like any other problem. And this is, this falls, you know, my situation fell into, you know, horrifying fear and what am I going to do? I'm going to do it wrong. I'm going to make mistakes. Excuse me, but there were professionals to ask too, and I, you know, I got a lot of uh, help and and constructive, helpful feedback from those people. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Nancy L, for your question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning, and of course, thank you to each panelist, Nancy P, Rick J, and Melanie, for your honest profound, deep, powerful, captivating shares of your spiritual work and the transformation that followed. Truly touching. Thank you so much for all that you've given to all of us this morning. Share ID for today's presentation, 16,028. That's 16028. 16028. And we're going to close now. From page 164, I'm sure you know, it's in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. Answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.